Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. I've been working on my rewrite, that's right I'm gonna change the ending Gonna throw away my title And toss it in the trash Every minute after midnight All the time I'm standing It's just for working Oh, you get to change your own title, did you, Paul? The last book I wrote, the publisher changed the title without telling me All right, so uh, we are going to talk about books today, but in an unusual way. Uh, We are going to talk very specifically about the movie movie Turn Every Page. It's a documentary made by Lizzie Gottlieb, daughter of Robert Gottlieb, the legendary book editor and for a time New Yorker editor. And as we also learned, major force in the world of dance, perhaps a less acclaimed part of him, but very specifically about his relationship with the writer Robert Caro, famous first of all for The Power Broker, about Robert Moses, and then for his multi-volume set of books about Lyndon Johnson. And, and the, there's, it's sort of an action movie in the sense there's kind of – can these two guys get it done uh, before one of them dies? And, and I regret to tell you, if you don't already know, that a couple of days ago, about 24 hours after we decided to do this show, Robert Gottlieb died at the age of 92, which sort of casts a pall over the conversation. On the other hand, it's very much priced into the conversations they're having in the movie. So – who have we got here to talk about this? We have Ileana Douglas, the official movie star of The Colin McEnroe Show. She also has a book coming out pretty soon. Uh, Jean Seymour is a writer, professional spectator, pop culture maven, and jazz geek, mayor of our uh, end-of-the-year jazz show every year. Lindsay Lee Wallace writes about culture, healthcare, and health equity, and other stuff, too. Before they get going, let's give you a little flavor of the movie itself. This is going to be A1 Cat. Uh, you can hear these two guys and Lizzie talking about semicolons. The great thing about Bob is also the maddening thing about him. Everything is of total importance. The first chapter of the book and a semicolon. They're of equal importance. And he can be equally firm, strong, emotional, irrational about any of them. Now, I'm like that too, so it takes one to know one. Because I too think that a semicolon is worth fighting a civil war about. I mean, a semicolon has a particular function. A semicolon is not as much of a stop as a period. That's a full stop. But it's more of a stop than a comma, which is just in a, something you slide, a little stop. So it has a particular function. He says you have a very different idea about semicolons than he does. Because mm-hmm, I'm an editor. He's just a writer. Now you also know that that final voice is Robert Gottlieb. The one that was in the middle there is Robert Caro. So, Ileana, I think somewhere, somehow, some way, you told somebody that this might have been your favorite movie of 2022. If that's true, say why you like it so much. 
I love it. I've seen it like three times. And I mean, aside from the fact that it represents an era that kind of doesn't exist anymore, the greatest editor, book editor of all time, working with all the most famous uh, writers of our time, the greatest political writer of, of all time. What I love about it is that it celebrates art, that art has brought these two men together. And that one could not uh, function without the other. And that's what I truly love is their relationship of how they are working together to, to bring out these, you know, these two books. I also love anything that is about that unlocks the artistic process, which is an incredibly, if you're in any kind of creative field, unlocking that creative process i find to be very difficult and there's so many aha moments uh for somebody like me who loves writing and wants to be uh a writer and celebrates writing and reading in this kind of day and age i think that's what i love about it and then just one final thing that i love about it is the fact that the two men are in these incredibly stable relationships <laughs> and how both of their wives are partners to their work in terms of their research and all of that. So, and I could go on and on, but yeah. that's just a thumbnail. No, that's good. And I think that uh, helps me get to um, a question for Gene Seymour. Mr. Mr. Merritt, you've arrived totally unprepared for the show. All you've done is read about 6,000 pages <laughs> <laughs> Robert Caro and, and run into not Robert. Re- Ca- not recently. Not recently. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and run into Robert Gottlieb at, you know, dance uh, performances at the Joyce and stuff like that. So, um, but I think what Liliana said is really interesting. And, and I, I think it'd be a fun thing to have you talk about, which is, yeah, this is sort of a window on something you don't ever see. And oddly enough, the movie doesn't really let you, it's kind of like the R-rated version of an X-rated movie. The X-rated stuff is Gottlieb and Caro in there talking and wrestling and in a very funny way. The movie never really quite lets you see that. But talk about how, I mean, you must have been dying to know something about all of this. And so to Ileana's point, do you think you, you get something about that relationship and that dynamic that you didn't have before? Yeah, I, I didn't really feel I had to see them together in uh, one in one spot, because and I think that was a very solid choice on on uh, on, on Lizzie Gottlieb's part. Because I have to say, uh, the the transaction was so strong and tight and vivid enough so that it seemed to be there even when there's when when both Caro and Gottlieb were speaking in different rooms. They are both. Um, they're so they're so tied together by this process that and and that what made this movie I, I saw it twice and, and and it seemed really I was noticing how well constructed it was because some of the ancillary voices like the woman who's uh, the, the 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 veteran editor at the New Yorker for instance who was brought in as a as a character witness for the semicolon uh, <laughs> and. And, and and all these other and those and all these other people who were kind of brought in from like you know off stage you know David Remnick people like that, um, and and even with that I mean, even their presence didn't violate the the thing that that joins Caro's process and Gottlieb's process together, and 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 
and, and the thing that was really hard to capture that you would think would be really hard to capture are is the outcome um i don't want to say consequences but but but, but the thing that makes robert Caro's political writing great is that you see how the process affects people and when when you watch uh Caro and Gottlieb interacting, you see how the process affects what you take in of what they're talking about, what they're writing about. Moses, Robert Moses, Lyndon Johnson, whatever. And that was very, uh, that seemed to be very hard to do at the outset. And uh, I, I thought, again, I saw it again a second time, and I thought it worked even better than I than I, than I suspected. You know, uh, Lindsay Lee Wallace, you are to put it charitably to us, several decades younger than the rest of the people on this panel. Um, and probably in your lifetime, you will have uh, AI edit your books uh, and long magazine pieces. And I am here comfortable to tell, telling you that in terms of the book industry, if you don't have Robert Gottlieb as your, our, uh, as your editor, you're probably going to be – it's one of the few times you're better off with AI. I, I think a chatbot can do a better job editing your books than many of the editors these days do. But what was it like to see this? This is like you know going up to Sturbridge Village and watching them churn butter you know, in pilgrim outfits or something. It, it feels like maybe a world you wouldn't even have a window on prior to this. Yeah, I mean, as somebody who's early in my writing career and who, you know, has heard like fables of such like romantic in like a in like a, the romantic ideal of the relationship between the writer and the editor to see it, it really gives me like a pang of I watched it with my partner and they said I didn't even know that this existed and I feel nostalgic for it because it feels like with especially Robert Gottlieb's death, like that's putting a, not a semicolon, but a period at the end of, you know, the passage that represents that kind of, not just like that kind of relationship, but the resources needed to do that kind of work together and the vote of confidence that it represented in Robert Caro's work for the investment that he was given as a writer to be able to do these projects. And it's obvious how worthwhile it was. It's obvious in the, you know, the way that everybody else talks about this work is not only being like the power broker is not only being a great portrait of Robert Moses, but being a, a portrait of New York City and a portrait of all the people that were affected by what Robert Moses did, which by the way is also, you know, kind of a flag for like anyone who wants to say, you know, this work is problematic because it's of its time, need only look at how compassionately represented the way that Robert Moses's work affected everybody else in New York City in this book written by Robert Caro to know that you are never too old to have compassion for people and understand the way that power affects people. But I feel like hearing you say that AI is going to edit my writing um, the way my stomach drops looking at the future, <laughs> the way that journalism is contracting, it feels like that kind of work is going to become increasingly scarce. And I'm horrified by the idea that I will be of a time when people will say, well, you know, AI was editing everything at that time. So the fact that it completely lacks compassion for marginalized people, the fact that it was written by, you know, eight old white men, like that's just the way that it was then. And that's the time we live in now. So that's pretty dystopian to think about. <laughs> Yes. Um, and, and believe me, you're going to be better off. I mean, like your AI editor will never have a drug problem. Um, you know, it's maybe the, a virus problem. Maybe I don't a, know. Maybe there a will virus be something. Problem. True. So, you know, Ileana, so much of the movie business, you know, way more about this than I do. But one sense is a lot of the movie business is about, you know, you're getting things sold with one sheets and log lines and things like that. And so the one sheet on this is that doesn't really seem like it could possibly 
work. It would be maybe a movie that 500 people in America would enjoy. These two old guys talking about being a writer and an editor and some other people chiming in and you got Bill Clinton and you got Conan O'Brien. But it did, on paper, as they say, wouldn't necessarily look like a, the winner that it is. So I don't know. Do you have a sense of how Lizzie Gottlieb gets this thing to hum and pop the way it does? Well, remember her her mother too is a is a wonderful actress Maria Tucci who actually played my mom in To Die For. Uh, <laughs> so it's nice to kind of to see her. She, you know, they they uh, listen. I tuned in because again, I'm of the era. My grandparents were you know Melvin Douglas and Helen Hagen Douglas. They were of this era that you know Robert Caro books on their bookshelf, and so I tuned in because I said, oh, this is the two smart people talking about things that I love and I'll learn something. But what drew me in was, again, that pull for the bohemian artist. You know, the world doesn't exist. I'm going to write one book for the rest of my life. You know, that that kind of sacrificing for your art. Th- those are all the romantic things that really pulled me in. And another thing that I thought was that they were, you know, two men that really came from very troubled households. That was kind of a surprise, you know, very, very unhappy childhoods. And they what what I got again and again and again, which I think is good for anyone who's an artist, is this thing about trusting your instincts, your instincts. He he believed in himself that he thought he was a good reader, you know, Robert Gottlieb. And so, as I said, there were so many on the surface. Yes, it seems like, OK, it's this intellectual thing. But as you dive into the movie, I, I I'm stuck on the romanticism of the process of the art. And they and that by cha- trusting their instincts, these two men re- literally changed the landscape of the books we read. You know, <laughs> and I think that that's they're so kind of humble. I mean, is, did somebody else pick up on that? The fact that they seem like very humble, hardworking men. Yes, they have egos and stuff, but does anyone else feel that way? I was telling Colin Col- that I, I met Gottlieb a couple of times because he was a real, I mean, the film kind of touches about how cosmopolitan he is. Yeah. He's Miami Valet. He's, he's a, he's a stone bulletin but he was also a jazz hound. He edited a huge anthology of jazz writing. And so it gives you a little bit of that. But but when you talked about, you know, discovering what you what they could do, they also in, in Gottlieb's case, especially, there was something worthwhile. There was something of value in being able to read. Me being able to read and read and read and read. I mean, this guy, according to his obituary, he read War and Peace cover to cover when he was like. 12 or 13 or something like that. Um, and I, I, I kept thinking, and I thought I was nerdy, but I, th- but he discovered that there was something you could do with that, that it had value yeah. in the world, not just financial value, but yes. value in the world. And, and these, and, and the thing that, that, that you, you kind of wonder about looking at then is that, was it easier somehow to find that kind of value in such things in another time? And and do and do people who are trying to figure out who they are and what they want to be have the access to that kind of sense of value and purpose? I don't know. That's the other thing I wonder about. Yeah, and I think also one of the things I mean to sort of to Ileana's other point, um, Lindsay, 
you know, I'm going to now misuse Isaiah Berlin's over-misused trope about the fox and the hedgehog. You know, the fox knows many things. The hedgehog knows one thing well. Um, and and I'm definitely a fox. <laughs> I don't know a lot about anything, but I, I knew a little about a lot of things. But I, I was also looking at that kind of focus that Caro has, you know. I mean, this is not ordinary book writing. This is like you're writing a book about Lyndon Johnson. So one of the many things you do is go and live in the... <laughs> <laughs> Texas Hill yeah. Country for three years just yeah. to get a kind of flavor of things. And Lindsay, I sort of wonder about that kind of focus, too. I wonder if that's even possible in the modern environment. It seems as though we're living in a, in a culture that the churn of culture these days moves so fast. I don't know. Could you even, first of all, what was it like to even watch him talk about that? I thought that specifically that part was so interesting because, um, I mean, as Ileana, you mentioned earlier with like the the obvious depth of both of their relationships with their wives and their families, when he was talking about moving there, my first thought was like, oh, my God, his entire family had to go live there so that he could write this book about Lyndon Johnson. And, you know, there's a lot like there's obviously so much affection and respect in those relationships, but there's obviously also so much work that is, you know, not even the work of like the research, which is significant, but also the work of like uprooting your life and the work of integrating yourself well enough into that community that people will talk to Robert Caro because they're not like, God, he's he's here to write this book and his wife is so standoffish that we don't want to talk to him. Like you have to be facilitating that with everything that you're doing, just like as he's talking about having moved from their house in Long Island to an apartment to be able to afford to keep working on his book about Robert Moses. It's like all of the all of the the dedication and yes, the time that you can have to be working on one project that I can't imagine having now. And then also the support structure around you of all of the your family and uh, an establishment that is giving you the money to be able to do this, or at least making it so that you're not totally impoverished trying to do this. And yeah, I mean, it feels it feels uh, unfathomable now that anything like that could be within reach for, you know, all but the smallest number of people today. And maybe it was always the smallest number of people, but also you have to be a certain. I would run screaming into the night after about three weeks of this. But Ileana, you know, there's that scene where they're they're in these archives. He and his wife are in these archives, and there's ah. this thing where it gets to be time where they have to turn everything back in and, and go back to wherever they're staying. This is down in Texas, and and Carol makes this speech, and it's a sort of a speech. It's not really a speech, but he says. You know, you look and you look and you look and there's like nothing, nothing, nothing. And you're spending your whole day going through these boxes. And then there's this thing, you know, it's this thing that you were looking for that you hoped existed. And all it makes you want to do is you can't wait to come back in here and sit down at this table again the next day and open some more boxes. It's the best feeling in the world. And I thought, no, it isn't. But it is for him. I, to me, that was like a big moment in the movie. It was a big moment for me. I mean, again, I'm revealing myself. I, For me, I was like, yes, because, you know, again, as a writer, you have a through line in your mind. And then sometimes you wake, you wake up and it's like, OK, this is going nowhere. I've written myself into a box. I don't really know what I'm this is about. And then 
you do through research, you, you are compelled to move forward. And I know when he was doing that, I, I spent a lot of time when I was writing this book at the Wesleyan archives and I had certain theories about things that I wanted to prove. And you go through, and like he said, you're in the actual history now. You're not reading a book. You're actually looking at letters from people and you're using almost like your psychic ability your instincts, as they talk about again and again, and you're piecing together the proof for what your through line is going to be. And I I'm, I thought that was, to me, I love that kind of stuff. I love that sort of research. I'd love to, it's like you're going back in time and you're in the, the room and that kind of, you know, that kind of a, a dedication uh, when I'm in these research rooms, I'm always shocked at how much stuff is actually in there and how little people are even aware of it. Because, again, we have this whole idea of like, oh, it's off somewhere and I'm lowly me. How could I just go in there? And that's for, you know, other people. And But I think anybody can go in an archive and look at these, you know, these different these different papers and stuff. But I, I, to me, it takes a tremendous amount of bravery to go into something that where you just think, I believe in this uh, artistic process and, and to not worry about what the outcome is going to be and work on it for, you know, seven years. Yes. I, 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 I don't get how that even works really. Um, <laughs> So we have to take a little break here. Uh, we're going to come back. And we're going to talk about this other article about the sort of streaming industry. Um, and Pat, Cat, are we just sort of talking our way in? Are we going out with music? What are we doing here? Let's play a little music and we can gather ourselves. Uh, and then Cat and I will just spend a, just a few minutes talking to you about pledging. Do it the hard way and it's easy sailing. Do it the hard way and it's hard to lose Only the soft way has a chance of failing You have to choose I tried the hard way when I tried Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the Go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. 
We're back on the nose today. Ileana Douglas, the official movie star of The Colin McEnroe Show. She has a book about Connecticut in film coming out pretty soon. Uh, Gene Seymour, writer, professional spectator, pop culture maven, jazz geek. Uh, Lindsay Lee Wallace writes about culture, health care, and health equity and other stuff too. So the other thing we thought we would talk about uh, today uh, is um, an article called The Binge Purge, which is not about what it sounds like it's about. It's uh, in New York Magazine slash Vulture. It is a mere 6,000 words long. And it basically asks the question, what's going to happen? We, we've already seen these tremors you know, where uh, in the streaming world where companies like market, uh, like Netflix, Netflix see their market cap suddenly plummet uh, and start running around throwing sandbags uh, over the side. Uh, it, it's just all so clear. It has been clear for a while that this doesn't seem sustainable. And so, and, and so what's going to happen uh, and what is happening and what sorts of mistakes are being made? What's getting thrown out with the bath that probably should be preserved? It's all there in this article. But Gene, I don't know. Maybe just be, we should begin with this. You can begin anywhere you want, really. But, you know, for a long time, it didn't look like it made any sense that you pay Netflix, you know, some relatively low amount of money. They have to supply you with thousands of choices. Uh, and then the same thing's happening in all of these uh, on Disney Plus. Uh, is happening on Max or HBO Max before it, uh, Showtime, Apple TV, Prime. Obviously, Amazon and Apple have other ways of making money, and so does Disney, but it still seemed like it was kind of a tottery thing to begin with. What was your big takeaway from the article? Well, I can remember, I think, this was this may have been not more than, say, 10 years ago, maybe, no, more like eight years ago, when uh, I and, and other people writing about pop culture were talking about the the glut. You said... Supply. I, I, I'd say we were we were there were avalanches of of content of TV series, you know, <laughs> of 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 all kinds of series that that even even to sort of gaze upon them, it, it, it was the same. People thought it would be better than cable, right? Because mm. you had a choice. It was you had something dictated. Well, what what ha- what happened is that you the same kind of paralysis that you got when you stared at a cable schedule and said. What am I going to watch? You know, took over in this world too, and and I and I sensed at the time. I, I don't know how soon it would happen, but I always sensed that at the time, something of that paralysis would creep into the business itself and into the business model itself to the point where, um, for every red hot series on HBO or or, or Netflix or or Apple TV, there were. There would be three or four dozen that were just disposable um, in, in 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 both quality or whatever, and and I don't know if if the let's try anything uh, way of, of doing this kind of business really works. I mean, I would love to know what Ileana thinks about how this how this process, so called, has affected um, you know. Her business. I know she can't talk too much because, well, labor troubles being what they are, <laughs> you can't. Yeah. But I mean, um, you know, I'd love to know just how, what it's like being in the middle of all that. You know, in terms of your livelihood, your your existence, really. Well, my my feeling is is that obviously from the first strike and the beginning of the internet, that that's when all the problems started in reality TV, and you know, it started cutting into 
shows. That's kind of where it all began. And then now we're, we're already, the it's already, the pooch is already screwed in a sense. Um, and then we had COVID. So what I started to see in COVID, which was part of the reason I moved back to the East, was that I saw the actual, the breaking up of Hollywood as the center of the universe for films and going back to the East Coast. And my belief, my personal belief is, again, you just have to accept, if you want to be an artist, you've got to accept just a, a much, much less money for acting for the joy of acting. And that becomes a very tough, it's not a boutique industry. Do you know what I mean? So for people coming up, that is what I find the challenge. Like if you want to be an actor, the odds of you making a lot of money are very, very slim. I mean, so when I started, you know, back in the nineties, yes, this is the dilemma. You could work your way up the ladder and be on a show and be making a really good living and getting residuals and all that, well, that all ended. So now when you do a show, you're you're kind of on the fence you know you're like well i guess i could do this thing it's good to work but you know it's like you're doing it's like you're a part-time job and so that you know unless you're at the very top obviously um and the real power it seems to me is always in the written word for the writer and the producer so does a person like me who loves acting switch their allegiance to the written word because you have more creative freedom and more power. Does that make sense? So it's, it's like you're yeah. I mean, the vanity uh, yeah, yeah. that acting is fun. I, who doesn't, I love being an actor and you sit on the set and people bring you coffee and it's wonderful, but you're really not getting, so you're famous, but you're not getting paid any money anymore. And not getting, not getting paid any money does seem like a, a theme that kind of runs through the through the piece. It's it's actors, but it's also the writers are not getting the kind of residuals. They're not getting any residuals that they used to live on. And but right. yeah, but Lindsay, I, I also feel as though. You know, ultimately, this piece isn't, although it does dwell a bit on the problems that writers are having and showrunners are having and stuff like that. I think, you know, ultimately, I, I also think a lot about us, the people who just watch stuff. And and, and it has become incredibly complicated and expensive uh, to know what to watch. And on the other hand, I'm a little fearful that the contraction that's about to happen contracts towards, and this gets comes up in the piece, might contract towards a mean, you know, and the mean is kind of more of a common denominator, and common denominators are typically less imaginative and diverse. So give me some of your thoughts, Lindsay. Yeah, I mean, I appreciated in the piece the discussion of like, you know, not just broadly the idea that, oh, the pendulum has swung away from this focus on, you know, uplifting marginalized voices, which I think is like the kind of... Um, when people say that, you can say, no, it hasn't. And then the conversation is over. But there are examples in the piece of like, we were trying to produce this series with a trans lead and now nobody will take it. Or we were trying to produce this series that was like largely the plot was driven by a character's identity and now nobody will take it. And it feels like very concrete examples, which I always appreciate because I feel like these conversations quickly just spiral into being like nebulous and you can't prove anything to anybody. Um, but I... Yeah, I agree that it feels like, you know, I going back to turn every page with like this, this beautiful relationship that was built around allocating all of these resources and all of this um, 
confidence to Robert Caro to write these books for very good reason that we're seeing no longer can exist. And if that can't exist for Robert Caro, then it feels not impossible that, you know, like the, the example they given here is Abbott Elementary and uh, Kinder Brunson and the idea that that's a show that, you know, even in today's landscape might not have gotten the same attention despite her like tireless work and success in the industry because somebody is like, there's no longer the right profit incentive for me to believe that like a show that is run by this black woman is is what we want to put our money into. Instead, we're going to make a 10 year long Harry Potter bonanza or something. And it feels it feels exactly like you're saying that there's a contraction back to the mean of, you know, what is supposedly safe and that that is not even necessarily reflective of what most people are interested in, because there are lots of decisions that are made to hew to a certain perspective that isn't actually in line with what the majority of people polled believe, but it is the people who have money and get to make decisions about who gets to make their television show. And I do think that, you know, even the examples given in this piece, I think they use the West Wing like twice. <laughs> um, and they're talking about like, where's the West Wing? Where's Friends and Seinfeld and ER? And it's like, you know, those shows are are like the West Wing is my comfort television show that I watch when I'm upset. But I wouldn't say that, you know, that's what I want the entire future of television to look like. But I do see why it's a safe place for the industry to contract back to. And that's depressing. Yeah, Gene, you, you, just to throw another um, rope back to uh, Turn Every Page, in a way, the way that they've been doing it is kind of a lot like the publishing industry it works. Gene and I have worked in a lot of different media, so, um, but it's a, way, a lot the way the book publishing industry works in the sense that, you know, 86, 87 percent of the books they publish don't make money. Uh, and Robert Grisham and, you know, Colleen Hoover or whatever her name is, and they're kind of like keeping the whole thing alive uh, and pumping, and J.K. Rowling. Uh, and and the rest of us, you know, are maybe getting some of their table scraps. And it seemed as though the streaming – at one point in the article, they say – they talk about, you know, prestige shows like The Bear or Beef. And, and for all of those, the writers say there were unloved misfires such as 1899, American Gigolo, Archive 81, as we see it, Becoming Elizabeth, Dear Edward, The First Lady, Let the Right One In, The Man Who Fell to Earth, Night Sky, On the Verge, Paper Girls, Reboot, and Shantaram. I've actually watched several of those. But it's the same thing, right? They were doing that, except that it costs a lot less money to do a book than to hire a whole bunch of people and find a set somewhere and do a TV show. Well, I mean, and my my latest example is is it was this uh, reboot of Perry Mason, which I loved actually. I mean, all the chances they were taking in in sort of this kind of back to the future version of of, of Perry Mason's origins, which took away, which at, which at the one hand subverted something that people were very comfortable with, you know, the the lawyer who never loses um, versus this poor schmo who gets beat up every every other episode. I mean, but I was liking what they were trying to do, and I wish they had given it a chance to really pursue the, the where 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 it could have been going with all these great actors and and interesting stories. Um, the idea of a black Paul Drake, for instance, mm-hmm. who was more like an easy Rollins kind of guy in in, in L.A. Fascinating, fascinating, and I wish there there had been an incentive. But um, the thing that the, the thing that Perry Mason has in common, though, with something like Game of Thrones, is that nobody thought at the outset that these were consensus projects. That these were things that were going to bring in all this mass love. I mean, most of the things that have worked and are still enduring within within the media universe, you know, the, of these miniseries 
they all started out as being marginal projects and no one knows how they connected or why people decided to grab onto them and if 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 they stop taking chances it does not necessarily mean that there's going to be more more quality product and less you know stuff and then that that's been true of the industry for 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 generations at this point so i don't know whether it, it it's good news or bad news i do know from my memory of of the last writer strike um there and when I, I was a tv critic uh both sides were reeling for at least a couple of years afterwards i mean if you remember they they didn't know what to do i mean there were all these half-baked ideas and unfinished and half-finished things that just sort of fell in there and it was like it, it took it took a while for people to recover their 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 balance so but but the important thing is that they should keep trying stuff even if even if it feels they should keep you know throwing stuff out there they should keep taking these chances and the less and the less bad stuff that gets quite the less good stuff there's going to be too. Right. I mean, I think you need to look no further than the Prime, Prime Series uh, Citadel right now. A ton yeah. of money got thrown at that. There's no particular vision behind it. They had terrible production problems. It's not associated with a pre-existing IP. And it's really bad and it's costing a lot of money. And all the projects that you just talked about, Gene, the things that they should be trying are not going to happen because they spent so much money on this. But uh, Ileana, we almost have to go here. Uh, yeah. And but But just as we wrap up here, I, I don't know. I mean, one th common thing is everybody's looking for a hit. And it seems to me one of the ways that you have a hit, you know, Gene was sort of talking about Perry Mason. Um, you know, with The Sopranos, there were people who thought there was too much psychiatry and not enough strangling. And there were people who thought there was too much strangling and not enough psychiatry. But both groups watched it. And you can see the thing about, same thing about sword fights and Westeros politics in Game of Thrones. You've got to be able to fish out of a bunch of different ponds, I think, in order to have enough of a hit to stay out of the niche category. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, the paradigm of West Wing and Seinfeld is just gone because, again, that was this slow and the same thing with acting. You've got little parts and then more parts and the bigger parts. And, you know, uh, you know, Seinfeld was a comic and then he wrote. And so I believe, unfortunately, that paradigm of having 15 years to kind of test out a bunch of different things before you get your first series is gone. You know, now it's like you have an idea, you're in the show. Oftentimes I'm working with people and, you know, bless their heart. They don't really know what they're doing, but they've been given this opportunity to do a show and you're kind of standing on the sidelines, kind of overqualified. So there, that is the current uh, paradigm. But as far as like the next great idea, I go back to the documentary. For me, for, for artists right now, whenever things are really bad, that's when I feel and tell other people like, okay, now is the time then to hunker down. And if you have an idea for something, just write it, yeah. you know, without, without any editorial, without anyone saying, no, we're really not looking for cop shows. If you have a good idea, I, I truly be believe in this and it's work. It's always worked for me is to be industrious and just write it, you know, just have it in hand and believe in it and work out all the kinks. And that way, when you present it to someone, you say, well, this is my idea and you can do it or not do it. Or maybe you can do it in London or right. there's a lot of other places aside, again, from Hollywood to, uh, you know, they're they're 
there are a lot more venues, I think, to get things on the air. I All right, feel- we, we, we got to stop there just so we'll have some time on the other side of this. But that's a perfect place to end. You got a good idea? Write it. Worry about the other stuff later. We'll take a break. Yeah. We'll come back. Bourgeois house in the Hollywood Hills with a trunk load of hundred thousand dollar bills. Man came by to hook up my cable TV. We settled in for the night, my baby and me. We switched round and round till. All right. First of all, thank you to poor, 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 very sick cat pastor who has to work today. Uh, you should be pledging to us later, not now, but uh, later uh, in honor of cat. Uh, and the producer of this episode was Jonathan McPants. We have a very exciting uh, episode coming up tomorrow. It's also produced by him as our Saturday show. Uh, and what else do I have to say? Nothing else other than it's time to make some recommendations. Lindsay Lee Wallace, why don't you get us going? Uh, my recommendation is the documentary Bama Rush from Rachel Fleet, which is about um, the sorority rush process at the University of Alabama and also about the TikTok community around following young women go through this process and also about the uh, foibles of being a young woman and the pressures of conformity and the desire to belong. Um, and I thought it was really lovely, but there's a whole bunch of wild controversy about it. So if you watch it, you can also get yourself involved in that and have a nice weekend. Is there some uh, wheezing, doddering streaming platform that this is on? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I we'll, think it's on Prime. We'll, tra- we'll check no, it out. No, it's on HBO. It's HBO. On HBO. Bama Rush on HBO. All right. Uh, and uh, Mr. Mayor, uh, Gene Seymour, what do you have for us? Well, in keeping with our theme of books and publishing, today is Bloomsday. Yes. Which those of us who know, uh, who have read the work of James Joyce, know what that means. It's June 16th, which was the day in the life of Dublin, June 16th, 1904, that is chronicled in the novel Ulysses. Now, like a lot of people, I was intimidated when very young about how complicated and, and complicated and hard to understand the book was before I even read it. I've now read it three times, and I get something different out of it every time. So my recommendation is that if you are intimidated still after all these years by Ulysses, give it a try. Don't be afraid. You don't have to know Latin. It's not a trip to the dentist. It's like I tell people about jazz. It's not a trip to the dentist. It's it's a really, it's a great story about people just trying to live their lives. Three people in particular, of course. Uh, it's called Bloomsday because one of the characters is Leopold Bloom. <laughs> Uh, and and if you can't and if the and if the idea of the text itself is hard, then I strongly urge you to consider downloading or finding an audiobook version of it because it's a great idea. That, yeah, yeah. Well, it really needs to be heard. You need to read it with your ears. Um, and and there are audio versions available. My favorite is an abridged version. It's a dramatization on the BBC, of uh, uh, which came out a few years ago, which I which I just now listened to again. All right. We've got about a minute left here for you, uh, Ileana Douglas. What are you going to recommend to us? Okay, it's going to seem kind of kooky, but, uh, you know, I love watching baseball and uh, I recommend everybody watch. Uh, baseball games, especially the Red Sox commentators, I think that sports directing, you can learn more about drama and directing than watching um, the way they cut 
in baseball in terms of creating tension, cutting to the crowd, cutting to the audience. I am absolutely fascinated by how dynamic they make uh, baseball games. And if you're not into sports, I just you should you should check it out just because, again, I think you'll pick up. There's something inherently interesting about the drama of a baseball game in its simplicity, how directors make it really dra- dramatic. All right. So Jonathan McPants is all swoony with love for you right now. He just it's probably his favorite uh, point anybody's made in an endorsement ever. So uh, take that to the bank, Ileana. I'll just because because of that, I'll switch my uh, endorsement and I'll say a read in the current issue of The New Yorker, Louisa Thomas's profile of the pitcher, Daniel Bard, even Again, to Ileana's point, if you don't think you like baseball, it doesn't make any difference. You you can know nothing about baseball and get a lot of enjoyment out of this piece. It's a fascinating study of a guy who was just one of the most phenomenal young pitchers and then couldn't figure out how to throw the ball right anymore. But it's an up and down and up and down piece, and it's full of profundities. Uh, It's just a wonderful, wonderful piece by Louisa Thomas about Daniel Bard. And then also, I've recommended this probably twice already, same kind of spirit, The Battered Bastards of Baseball. After you watch uh, Lindsay's documentary, watch The Battered Battered Bastards of Baseball, which I think is still on Netflix. It's a story of uh, Kurt Russell's father, Bing, who did a very remarkable thing with the minor league team. All right. We're going to thank this wonderful panel. Uh, We're going to play a little tiny bit of music. And then, uh, and right now, Cat Pastor is blowing her nose. uh, And then (laughs) we're going to talk to you just, just briefly here at the end. 